Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. everyone, welcome to Talking Tudors episode 180. I'm your host Natalie Gruniger. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'd like to start by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support my podcast on Patreon and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love the podcast and you never miss an episode, I invite you to join the Talking Tudors patron family please visit patreon.com slash talkingtutors for more information. Join the Talking Tutors patron family and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll have access to patron-only monthly giveaways. October's prize is a copy of a wonderful new book entitled Twas the Night Before Tudor Christmas. Thank you to Catherine Holman and Laura Loney for sponsoring this fantastic prize. All patrons are also eligible to attend monthly Talking Tutors live talks, which take place on Zoom. Next month, I'll be chatting to Philippa Lacey Brule from British History Tours about Tudor historic sites. Check Patreon for all the details. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. I would love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tudors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag #ILoveTalkingTudors. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled that joining me on the show to discuss Thomas Cromwell is Caroline Angus. Caroline is a New Zealand-based author raising four sons. Caroline studied history at the University of Valencia in Spain, spending 10 years dedicated to the Spanish Civil War and the resulting dictatorship. Caroline went on to study with King's College London, specialising in Shakespeare and British royal history. After a decade of writing fiction, including the Secrets of Spain series, focusing on the lives of Valencian interviewees between 1939 and 1975, and the more recent Queenmaker trilogy, 11 years of Thomas Cromwell and his fictional attendant, Nicola Frescobaldi, Caroline is now creating non-fiction works on the surviving papers of Thomas Cromwell. Our conversation is coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sales. Thank you. 
Welcome to Talking Tutors, Caroline. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me today. Yes, it's lovely to have you back on the show. It's been a little while. So for our lovely listeners, can you just introduce yourself to them and just tell us a little bit about your background? I am an author of Thomas Cromwell. I've been researching Thomas now for about six years, and I've written three books, uh, three fiction books about him, and I've now done two nonfiction as well. Um, after studying history. Fantastic. And so I know that you've been studying his life for quite a long time now. So what is it about him that you find so fascinating? For me, it's that he started out as a nobody. That's where, what defines him in the in the English court. He wasn't rich. He didn't have noble parents who could give him a start in life. He didn't go to an excellent school. He didn't have any financial backing. He just did everything against the odds. And I think that's why he stuck out so much for me personally. That's why I love him. He was the outsider who never really fit in. And so you, you've got a new book out very recently, The Private Life of Thomas Cromwell. So can you tell us a little bit about that, maybe the inspiration behind it and what readers can expect to to find in it? Uh, In 2020, I decided I would write a book all about Thomas Cromwell's letters, which are primarily about his business life, about what he did in court, the laws he wrote. And then I started finding these little tidbits about his life I still found really interesting, just little things about what he liked to wear, who his friends were, that sort of thing. And I found that I could write a whole book just about who he was, because a lot of people said, you know, I don't know much about him. He doesn't really have a personal life. You know, he didn't have a relationship when he worked in the royal court. So he sort of, his life was quite different to most people that you would read about in that sort of Tudor noble era. And so I decided to put a private life of Cromwell I like to say oh like you've never seen him before you know how you see him in posters and things but um yeah he it was it was a different version of him things were going on but what he was doing in the background of all the you know those major milestones that we already know fantastic and so let's get into his life a little bit the private life of Cromwell so can you tell us a little bit about his early life his family his upbringing what do we know of that kind of chapter of his life I think there's been a lot of fiction about how Thomas Cromwell's life started. Got that story of this this boy living sort of in poverty, being beaten by his parents. You know, it's a very sort of well-worn story now, which isn't quite accurate. I'm not going to say it's wrong, but it's not quite accurate. He had, I would seem, a perfectly normal life for the time period, born in around 1485. Um, his mother, she came from, I won't say a poor family, it was sort of a minor gentry. They did have a little bit of land, whereas Walter Cromwell, Thomas's father, he was sort of a more rough and ready man, you know, a man of his time. He would do literally anything to make money. So that's actually came quite handy because he had cousins that lived nearby. They had a lot of friends. It was a really big extended family that Thomas was born into, uh, the youngest, at least the youngest surviving child of the family. And it meant that whilst they didn't have much, they had a little bit of land and a kid like Thomas could learn a lot of different trades. It meant that he actually had more opportunities that you would imagine. And of course, being where he lived in Putney, there was a lot of travel that went on. A lot of boats would stop there going up and down the Thames. So it meant that, you know, when your uncle starts an alehouse, there's all these people coming in. You get to meet people. You get the opportunity to travel. And it was just really like an opportunity for a boy who was obviously really keen just to get out and see the world. 
And in terms of, you mentioned travel there, we know that he does do quite a bit of travel around Europe. And of course, he's a brilliant um, linguist and speaks Italian beautifully. So can you tell us a little bit about his time abroad? There's no way of knowing where he travelled when he first left England. And it's quite often assumed France because he joined the French army. But I'd say, judging by his language skills and generally what he liked later in life, he more likely spent time in the Low Countries because that's where they were pulling a lot of foreign mercenaries from around the year 1500. They were getting, there was a solid unit from the south of France, but then they were also getting a lot of foreigners from northern France and into the Low Countries. So it's very possible he was on either side of the border there at the time because it seems very strange for an English boy to join the French army, but they were offering a money, a bit of adventure, and they were relying on the support of foreigners because they were just running out of people in war. And that gave him a chance to march all the way down into Italy into a battle that didn't go well for him or any side of the of the French. But um, yeah, we're talking about a really dramatic change in a kid's life. And um, he was actually really lucky to survive it. Absolutely. And so we know he returns to England, obviously, at some point. When does he first come in contact with Wolsey? Do we know or when he first enters his service? Wolsey sort of sat in the background of Cromwell's life for quite a long time. Cromwell came home in around 1513 in which he set up his own legal business in London because he had, you know, really strong sort of extended Italian family as such with a lot of friends. And he didn't really need to go into a household, you know, the more wealthy sort of benefactors a lot of people had. His brother-in-law was spending a lot of time working for Thomas Gray, the second Marquis of Dorset. And that meant that he had did have a little connection of someone he could work for if he needed that little extra boost or, you know, sort of being recommended as a lawyer. But for most of through to the 1510s through to 1520, Cromwell was working mostly on his own. And it was only after he did some work for the estate of the Duke of Buckingham when he was murdered by King Henry in 1521 that uh, they sort of saw this opportunity that maybe I could work for a more noble house, I could meet other people. And he went and worked for Thomas Gray along with his brother-in-law. And it was the connection through Gray who recommended them to Wolsey to start working as his personal lawyer. And so, Caroline, can you tell us a little bit about Cromwell's wife and his children? Unfortunately, they sort of are consigned to history, you know, a woman and children who didn't make it, they sort of get forgotten. Um, Elizabeth Williams, initially her name was probably Elizabeth Wicks. When she first first, uh, got married, she married uh, Thomas Williams, who was related to the Williams family, who were in turn Cromwell's in-laws. So that's how they would have met. And then when she was widowed, she needed a new husband at the same time that Cromwell was in need of a wife. And they were sort of paired up amongst the extended family. And um, they seem to be really happy together. I know a lot of people have made things about, oh, he's writing her letters. There are basic letters. They're not romantic. But they were happy. They seem like a perfectly happy couple living in the sort of Italianized part of London. And then they had Gregory probably around 1520. There's a big gap between uh, getting married and having Gregory. So there may have been other children that we just don't know about because they were married at least five years before he came along. And then all was well there. And then they upgraded their family home. And then they had their daughter, Anne, probably around 1522, 1523. And then they had baby Grace. And I think she was born just based on his letters 
probably around 1527. So unfortunately, she didn't live a very long time because both the girls died in uh, 1529. So yeah, he lost their their baby. Yeah, that's so tragic. When the that story, uh, sweating sickness came through. Yeah, I mean, he lost his wife and then he'd been recovered from that. And then uh, the girls were taken away as well. So, yeah, it was a really hard time. And you could see just how much he suffered in everything that he did. He was really hurting. That is absolutely horrific. And I believe he loses, well, Gregory also dies quite tragically later, doesn't he? Yes, he only lived to be 30. And then, of course, it was the sweating sickness again that swept through England. And it was one of its last ever you know, large outbreaks and actually took Gregory away as well 10 years after his father died. So, yeah, that disease really had it in for the family. It was a really, really sad situation. So after Wolsey, Wolsey's downfall and Wolsey dies, what does Cromwell do? What happens to him then? I don't think Cromwell particularly wanted to work for the king after Wolsey died. It hit Cromwell really hard. They had been good friends. I think they really bonded about having sort of a shared sort of start in life and they got along really well. And then afterwards, did Cromwell want to work for the king? He he didn't really seem overly keen on it, but Henry was interested in some of the work that Cromwell had done. So he was very much working in the background for the king. Through 1530, he was very quiet, mostly managing, you know, not very exciting things for the king the sort of the legal work that he didn't care about and then Wolsey died at the end of 1530 and then all of a sudden the king said oh I like this guy he's been very loyal he hasn't asked for anything legal and financial work that no one else really wanted to take on after Wolsey was gone so for a lot of that time he was just doing you know standard legal and accounting work you know it's not exciting it's certainly not glamorous but it gave him a chance to share his own ideas with the king his, you know, reformation sort of, you know, huge belief system that he had going at the time. And with his friend Thomas Cramner, of course, was there as well. They just sort of slowly drip fed the king their ideas and the king just latched onto it. He'd take anything if it meant that he could marry Anne Boleyn. Absolutely. And we know that obviously Cromwell was an extremely busy man. You just need to look at his, his letters and his intrigue. But can you give us a taste of, of, you've told us legal and financial work, obviously, as time passes, can you give us a taste of the work that he's doing for the king, the, the sort of tasks that he's, he's assigned? It started out as really boring things. He was just looking after, say, you'd look at the Michaelmas accounts, make sure everyone's paid their bills. And then bit by bit, it would grow. He started running the jewel house for the king. How do we take care of the things we've got? How do we need audacious ideas? Always sitting. He must have just been working on these things constantly in the background. And then he'd pull out, oh, look at this. I've discovered a way that we can make sure the entire clergy submit to your will. Because, you know, I've just been quietly writing this in my off time. Um, you know, so he'd go for really mundane tasks that he was paid for or managing estates for people right through to, you know, how do we change the entire succession of the English throne? You'd have this quietly, oh, you can pick your ear. You know, he would come up with all kinds of crazy things out of nowhere. When it started out, really, he just, you know, a monastery would be doing poorly financially. So he'd close it down you know, and merge it with another nearby one that also wasn't doing well just to boost their numbers. It was very dull, mundane tasks that took on this huge life of their own. Of course, the king saw these plans for monasteries and shut them all down. Cromwell didn't want to do that at all, but he didn't really have a choice. And it was just little by little. He just wanted to make things better the way that he saw them as better. 
you know, he rewrote the poor laws, how they were going to help beggars, how they were going to educate children who didn't have any any opportunities, um, how they were going to build infrastructure and how they would use people to do that so everybody could benefit, you know, be paid and then be able to use things like roads or ports. He always had ideas about how to just make things better the way that he's he saw them as better. And of course, if you were Catholic, you didn't always agree, but he just wanted to reorganize everything. Essentially, he was just, you know, he just had this absolute desire to organize things. Yes. And and what do you think are the skills that made him absolutely indispensable to the king? He had two things that made him stand out. And that was firstly, loyalty. He had no real reason to be loyal to Wolsey. He didn't need that job, but he just did it because he liked him. He just he was just honest and very upfront with what he believed and how he worked. And I think that really responded to the king because if Cromwell believed in something, for example, Wolsey, and everybody decided to denounce Wolsey because the king didn't like him anymore. So you jump on the bandwagon. And Cromwell stood up in Parliament and said, I don't believe any of you. I think you're wrong. And he did it in front of the king. He wasn't scared to do so. He was loyal, even though there was no benefit in it. And that brought to the other thing that the king really liked is in when Cromwell did a job, he wasn't looking for something in return. Yes, you would get your little salary like everyone would, but he wouldn't be angling for something else. He didn't want a gift. He didn't want land. He wasn't looking for a title. He never asked for anything. He did it, but he didn't ask in return. He didn't benefit at all from working for six years for Wolsey because he didn't ask for anything. He wasn't in charge of anything. He didn't get any cash payments, nothing like that. It was just a very simple job. And I think the king liked that because he wasn't only doing things for personal gain. He was just going to work like a normal person. He wasn't begging you for things or trying to persuade you to do something for their own financial benefit. And there wasn't many people doing that at the time. No, I don't, I don't think I can think of anyone else that was like that. Uh, so who were his his greatest allies or his, his most important allies at court? He didn't have a lot of friends. But losing Thomas Gray in 1530, I think, was a really hard one. They were really good friends. And that whole Gray family continued to be his friend, even though there wasn't, there was no benefit to it. He didn't gain them anything. They didn't do anything for him. They were just good friends. Thomas Cramner was there, of course, from 1532. They were always really close. They'd known each other for a while by that stage. So it was always good that they could be very honest with each other. They would disagree on a lot of things, and it was okay. Um, it didn't hurt their friendship. Uh, strangely, um, good old Eustace Chapuis was uh, one of Cromwell's friends, I suppose you could call them. Even though they were opposed on so many issues, at the same time, they also had a lot of things in common. And uh, so they always bounced back and forward. They were really close. It was actually quite interesting that the fact that they could be so friendly. But as time passed, Cromwell had fewer and fewer allies at the court. Um, and he sort of, especially after Jane Seymour died, he did tend to sort of shy away from people more and more. And he did become quite isolated, which, of course, is part of how hard things became for him in the end. Absolutely. And before we talk about his end, his downfall and his end, I wanted to ask you about if you can tell us a little bit more about the man behind this kind of black attire that we all know. Who is the man that you've come to know through your years of research? What was he really like? I think he was... He was definitely a charmer. He was very charismatic, and you would never get that from looking at a picture of him. He looks like a fat old man in a black suit. 
you know, he, you know, from his time spent in Italy, they would wear black because it showed wealth. It would show that they were respectable. And he seemed to really continue that. So you would see that in his portrait because the portrait gives nothing away about him. And I don't think he wanted it to. And so he's dressed himself up simply how he would look if, you know, he had come into his own 10 years earlier. He had no interest in being shiny in that portrait. And it does, it gives you this impression of this this really rough old man who would be boring. But he, he loved to party. He was always throwing huge, huge banquets. The king would be invited. Um, everyone would dress up. Um, he would be acting in the, the shows that they would put on. Um, he loved to gamble. He was terrible at gambling all these years, and he never got better at playing cards or dice. He lost huge amounts of money, particularly to the king and to Edward Seymour, really uh, got a lot of money out of him on a number of occasions. But he just loved to do social things, and it, you didn't have to be noble he would invite you know all his extended family someone who lived down the street you know it would be a real mixture of people that would come and his house was very open to a lot of people a lot of the people who worked in the household they you know they'd fallen on hard times he'll take them in you get a job and then he'll slot you into somebody else's household when a job comes up he just liked regular people but at the same time he just liked to spend and share and he got a lot of gifts in return which obviously probably helped his bank account because people just genuinely liked him people would turn up and say oh i found a bird that you might like for your collection he was just you know a regular person the stiffness of the royal court or how he looks at that portrait doesn't really show who he is it was because i don't think he wanted people to know what he was really like in the royal court they were not his friends he knew that what a wonderful description. I think that really animates him. And next time we look at the portrait, we can think of all those interesting things. So so tell us a little bit now about what happened towards the end of Cromwell's life, what led to his downfall, just those events. Cromwell's downfall can seem really abrupt, but it was actually quite slow. Um, he got malaria. In that time, he lost control of Parliament. And the Duke of Norfolk was there. They had hated each other passionately through the entire time that Cromwell was at court. And Norfolk was desperate to get more Catholic control, both in Parliament and at the Royal Court. And um, he did very well. He, you know, he's got to be praised. He turned a lot of it around. He convinced the king to undo a lot of Cromwell's religious changes in that time period. And Cromwell was sort of on the back foot. And about sort of July 1539, he and the Duke of Norfolk got into a huge screaming match in front of the entire royal court. They were at Thomas Cramner's place at Lambeth Palace for a party, and it was meant to be to bring unity in religion, and they ended up screaming at each other's faces. And it, it really showed that there were two sides to the court, and they were never going to agree. And Cromwell decided to fight on with his plans. You know, he sort of doubled down on being quite extreme and trying to change things with religion in the court, and that only divided things further. And at the same time, he had found Anna of Cleves to be a wife for the king, it had been a long search. He had gone through every noble woman in Europe and no one would take the job. Um, and poor Anna. And people were really concerned because she came from, you know, a really reformist was her brother, but she was a Catholic. And Cromwell thought he'd found a nice balance, but nobody could agree on what was going on. And at the same time, her brother, he decided to wage war against Emperor Charles, which is the worst thing you want to get into. And of course, suddenly Cromwell had this bride that bound them to go to war against the emperor in Europe. And, you know, if you consummate that marriage, 
it's real, it's binding, and you're going to war with someone you may not beat, and not for any great benefit. You won't get anything out of this war, but you are obliged by a treaty that's sealed with a marriage. And it got worse and worse, and King Henry was desperate to get out of this marriage because he was a coward. He had this young, beautiful new wife, but he didn't want to go to war with her brother. It was it was just awkward, and then, you know, Henry decided that she was ugly or he didn't like her, which was none of this was said at the time, but it became a convenient scapegoat for the fact that he couldn't bed his wife. And I mean, she was probably relieved, but it was all quite awkward. And ultimately, um, things cooled off in Europe. The war talk sort of dampened down, but England had made big claims and Henry needed a scapegoat. He needed to say, oh, well, I would never have gone to war with you. Uh, but he said it. Cromwell said it. So it was an easy way of getting rid of somebody to sort of make a show of peace and, you know, just dampening down those hostilities at the same time as getting rid of the wife that he didn't like. Yeah, and, and we know that, you know, Cromwell did basically the work of 10 men. So so do we know whether or not Henry expressed any regret following Cromwell's execution? Yeah, Chapuis wrote about it and so did the French ambassador. They actually got together and discussed it on a few occasions where Henry, you know, he really took to eating through 1541 and into 1542. Obviously, we know it was a big hobby of his, but it got really bad. He was in a really bad state and they were really worried about his health. And they said he would sit there and lament about how a mistake had been made. Not his. He would never say it was himself. But um, Thomas Cromwell had been killed on bad evidence. And now he'd lost the best servant he ever had. He didn't know what he was going to do. And then, of course, he had another wife he had to get rid of not long after. That would have been a job that would have been easily sorted for Cromwell. Or, you know, poor Catherine Howard, that poor girl, probably never would have been allowed in as a wife if Cromwell had been able to dissuade the whole situation and that, that poor girl could have had a proper life. But, um, yeah, he did on a number of occasions say that he'd, there'd been a mistake. And even, you know, sort of towards the end of Henry's life, they were still finding that, they were relying on a lot of work that Cromwell had done because there'd been no one else to be able to take up the work and fill everything in the way that it needed. And things were, you know, really dramatically falling apart because nobody really took up that space for the king after. He'd had Cromwell, before that he'd had Wolsey. He always relied on someone to to do the heavy lifting. And through the 1540s, it all just sort of came apart. Yeah, that's so true. There was a big gaping hole left, wasn't there? So, Caroline, this has been so wonderful. It's been so lovely to hear more about your work and, of course, about Thomas Cromwell, the man. But before I before I can say goodbye to you, I wanted to ask you if you have a tutor takeaway for our listeners. So something for them to go off and explore after the episode. Sometimes people suggest books, websites, films to watch. Do you have a takeaway for us? Oh, I suppose the easiest thing would be to read The Private Life of Thomas yes. Cromwell. But no, I think with <laughs> with the, the Tudor period, I feel like Anna of Cleves and Catherine Howard really don't get the attention that the other wives get. I would always say read Heather Darcy, who wrote Anna of Cleves, and also Gareth Russell wrote an excellent book on Catherine Howard. I feel like those two don't get enough love. I would always suggest that. But one thing I find with Tudor books or shows or anything there can be a lot of gatekeeping a lot of oh that's not right this isn't good enough oh you should have read this read whatever you want 
Try authors that you know. Try ones that you don't. It's okay. Everything is okay. Oh, we don't need a 1600th show about Anne Boleyn. Really? Don't we? We might because there's a lot of misconceptions that are still floating out there. You know, poor Jane Boleyn is still getting all the negative um, sort of these things about her, like all she did. We do need these things. Let people love what they love. Try whatever you like, whatever makes you happy. If it's fiction, if it's nonfiction, if it's a TV show about Anne Boleyn as a vampire, it doesn't (laughs) matter. You know, you can love what you love. You know, we don't have to compete. There's plenty of room for all this history. Well, I could not agree with you more. And I absolutely love to end our episode on that wonderful note. Love what you love, everyone. That is such great advice. And Caroline, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to come onto the show and talk tutors with us. Thank you so much. I could do it anytime. We should talk all the time about the tutors. There's there's never too much tutor. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. <music> <laughs>